Hello, everybody, and welcome to A Soulful Revolution, a podcast at the intersection of spiritual transformation and social change. Pull up a seat at the table as I speak with soulful revolutionaries whose lives are a powerful source of hope and inspiration for me, as I trust they will be for you also. I'm Lauren Grubaugh Thomas, a priest, writer, spouse, and twin mama living in Littleton, Colorado, on the traditional homelands of the Arapaho and Cheyenne peoples. My guest today is Luke Milanakos Harrison. Luke is an organizer with the Connecticut Tenants Union, an organization he has helped build since it began in 2021. Like labor unions fighting for dignity and power in the workplace, tenant unions do the same, but at home, for renters and anyone else without control over their own housing. Luke is an ecumenical Christian on a nomadic journey with God and a recent graduate of Yale Divinity School. Luke, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Great to be here, Lauren. Thanks. I want to begin by asking you to share about what it means to you to be a soulful revolutionary. Could you tell a story about how you came to live at this intersection of spiritual transformation and social change? Yeah, I love the term, first of all. I feel like it really captures something I've struggled to maybe find words for in the same way, Um, but it really resonates. So thanks for Mm. putting those words together. Yeah, what what it means to me to be a social, soulful revolutionary, I think I come back again and again to how my inner life and my life of my soul, my life with God, my life of faith is so intrinsically intertwined with my outer life as a public person who is, um, you know, representing an organization, attempting to represent a movement, sort of, uh, you know, engaging in social change, which means having this public facing persona um, with people I'm organizing with, members of tenant unions, uh, sort of the public at large, politicians, et cetera those two aspects of myself, my inner and outer life are deeply tied and and connected and that the one informs the other. I can think of so many moments in my journey with community organizing where I have sort of needed to draw deep on internal spiritual resources that for me have largely come from my life of faith to meet the moment. Um, whether it's a moment of moving through fear and, you know, needing some courage or moving through sort of insecurity and self-doubt and needing confidence and trust Um, or moving through despair and what feels like sort of overwhelming, overwhelming odds and needing to dig deep for some faith and some hope. Um, And it's that, sort of cyclical process of engaging in action in the world and then realizing how deeply I need those, uh, that spiritual foundation, that, that inner life, that my inner life needs just as much attention as my outer life does in order to meet meet those moments where the um, intersection between spirituality and social change feels really clear to me. So I don't know, maybe a a story I could tell might sound, um, might not sound very glamorous, but I think it's extremely frequent and therefore very real, which is uh, in 
movement building work in the organizing that I do, interpersonal conflict is just part of the process. Um, you know, yeah. emotions run high, stakes are high, people are putting a lot on the line, putting a lot at risk, and that brings up all kinds of anxieties that then can easily like spill out onto each other, the people that are closest to us in when we're going up against enemies that are very hard to tackle. Um, it can be easier sometimes to sometimes to kind of unleash that anger on someone closer to home. So mm. a few months ago, this happened and I was sort of the target of someone else's and I could see it very clearly. It was anxiety and stress and the overwhelming odds that we're up against. Um, and sort of, I was, I was someone nearby who could absorb that. Mm. Um, whereas maybe the, the person or the entities truly responsible for the situation were too distant and impossible to, to reach. So it's, it spills out on someone closer to home. And in that interaction and in that moment, I found myself needing to just be really grounded again in, in who I am and who I know myself to be and sort of a sense of internal assurance and security from, from being beloved mm. and knowing that I'm, I'm okay at a really fundamental level. Like I'm okay because I have peace with God and peace with myself and engaging in that sort of groundedness enabled me to approach that interpersonal conflict with a lot more grace and maturity than I think I otherwise would have if I had been reacting from a more, um, just from a less grounded place or a place of, of less sort of inner, uh, inner security. Or if, if, if I had not done the inner work over many years, Mm -hmm. to embrace my belovedness confronting a conflict like that with someone who I was close to in organizing work would have been a lot harder mm. um, so I share that anecdote because it's such a common experience um, and but is is for me like such an encapsulation of how to be soulful and to be a revolutionary are uh, very related yeah thank you for sharing that those conflict moments bring up opportunities for us to ground, as you say, and to be at home in our bodies. I wonder for you within your own life journey, what it has meant to be at home in your own body. And how has that informed the work that you now do as a tenant organizer of helping others to have a place that they can call a home of their own? I'm, you know, transgender man, which was something I sort of had an inkling about myself for pretty much as long as I can remember, but for many, many reasons, could not really confront until my early 20s. Mm -hmm. um, it was sort of just too terrifying to consider the implications of confronting that inkling that I had. Um, but when I got to a certain stage in life and, and to a certain stage in my spiritual and theological journey where um, that it felt like it was on the table in a way that it had not been when I was younger. Mm. The core thing that happened there was me coming to believe that 
um, doing what I needed to do for myself to be okay with myself, to be at home in my body, to, to get a need met, um, was okay and not only okay, but good mm. and important and worth doing, you know, that, that my own well being and happiness was worth fighting for, which was a pretty significant shift, I think, in how I thought about myself. Um, yeah. It was a real moment of self embrace and self love. Mm. And that, honestly sort of changed my orientation to so many things in life and I think was very transformative in now seeing that for other folks to for for example engage in organizing and activism to fight for their right to have a home and not just kind of accept accept their fate to be oppressed Mm. for example or accept that the current winners are always going to be the winners and we're always going to be the losers. And so the best we can possibly do is try to cope with that. Um, that, that sort of mentality of, of despair and fatalism that holds so many of us back from, from taking action. Um, that it was that same, it was the same thing that I had experienced realizing that transition was something that I, I could embrace and that I, I actually deserved. Like I deserved to, um, to feel at home in my body. That wasn't mm-hmm. something I had to apologize for. I, I find that organizing for me now is so much about encouraging people to embrace their right to a higher standard of living, their mm-hmm. right to have good housing that they can actually afford that is not falling down in shambles around them. You know, that as a human being, they, sh- they can and should embrace their own well-being. And that that's not selfish. That's actually liberating for others. It's, it liberates everyone when we embrace our own liberation. That really was a realization I came to through my transition journey. Thank you for sharing that. It makes me think about how in the conversation around a just economy, around climate justice, around housing justice, there's this phrase that often gets used of, just transition, thinking about how these dramatic radical changes that we seek to the status quo are disruptive because change is always disruptive. And so are we enacting change in ways that are attentive to the well-being of those who are currently most oppressed by the status quo? And it sounds to me like that's something that you have learned from your own experience of attentiveness to your well-being is to be deeply listening to your neighbors and to what they need to be whole, to be well. It is. Yeah. One, one way I've sort of encapsulated this for myself in my own reflection is that, you know, my Christian faith in many ways taught me to be um, self-giving and self-sacrificial and to reach out in compassion towards others. Embracing my gender and uh, you know, asserting my right to be the gender that I knew myself to be taught me to love myself and mm-hmm. to you know, you know, sort of embrace my own personhood. 
And organizing is the exact intersection of those two. It is mm. reaching out to the other in compassion, but it is also my own self-interest. I want a world that's different for my own sake as well as for my neighbor's sake. And and the, the deepest truth of that is that those are one and the same, that our, our liberation is bound up together, that it's not charity. It's not, I erase myself so that you can have a place. It's it's solidarity. It's we are both going to yeah. lift each other up um, and sort of walk hand in hand, which when I when I go back to sort of the, the teachings of Christ about loving your neighbor as yourself, I realize that he's talking about solidarity, too, of which self-sacrifice is an element sometimes, but not absolutely the only story, you know, right. Both and. It's not martyrdom. It's a matter of our stories being interconnected and interdependent. Right. It makes me think of how the basic community organizing conversation is always about what is our shared self-interest? What do we both want that we don't yet have? I'd love to hear you share the practical side of the organizing work you do. And perhaps are there tools that you find yourself using regularly that those who are listening might use in their own neighborhoods? So you, you, you're probably familiar with this, Lauren, though others may not be, but you know the, the really fundamental tool of most community organizing is the one-on-one -on -one meeting. Two people sitting down for a set purpose to do exactly what you just described, find what values and goals we both share that we might be able to work together on. So in my context of tenant organizing, that looks like sitting down with someone who's frustrated with their housing situation or frustrated with their landlord, they're worried about their rent going up or they can't get their landlord to fix their, you know, leaking ceiling or whatever it is. They're dealing with housing problems. And I sort of come in as someone from the tenant union with this label of organizer. And we sit down and talk about what we might be able to do together. The model of organizing sort of where I'm coming from is always based in this foundational principle that it's about people power, which means it's about how many people can we get on board with this vision and program? Can we get your neighbors? Who do you know in this apartment complex? Have you talked to anyone else who's had the same issue? Um, yes. Okay. Let's go, let's go talk to them together and see if we can have this same conversation with three of us. That's what it looks like. It's person by person getting aligned on, we are all facing the same issue. If we combine forces, combine voices and practice solidarity, what might we be able to do together? And it's, yeah, it's, it's profoundly relational. It's, mm. it's, here's who I am. Here's what I want. Here's what my values are. What about you? Okay. Sounds like we have something in something to work with here, something in common, some sort of shared desire and, and vision. Let's take the next step by bringing in more people and mm. it's, keep building from there. Yeah, that understanding of organizing has absolutely infused all parts of my life outside of organizing proper, where mm. in any given situation, you can read the room and look around and see like, who here might be thinking what I'm thinking or <laughs> asking questions yeah. that I'm asking? Mm. How do I sit down with them and share a bit about myself and hear a bit about them and, you know, find out if there's a potential for, for shared action here. That's relevant almost everywhere. <laughs> Certainly in a neighborhood. 
you know? Yeah. That question of what do we want is so powerful. It makes me think of when folks go marching saying, what do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. And to be invited to explicitly name what we want is such an empowering thing. Because we, we live in this culture where we're not invited to want anything that isn't consumer goods. We can want, want, want all day stuff that can be bought. But when it comes to our communities, to justice, to joy, to what brings wholeness to ourselves and our neighbors, those are not the kinds of questions that we're typically asking or asked. That's why it's such a gift to have a leader like you who's asking these questions and to have you being the kind of person who is owning, acknowledging, taking responsibility for your own desires for your community, what it looks like for you to flourish in your own community, and to model that that is not a shameful thing, but that is in fact how we all can grow and flourish and live together. And yeah, it's subversive (laughs) and that's okay because we can come together and build people power around our collective needs and desires and make our community into something that we never could on our own within our individualized culture that we live in. Right. And it's, I think something I love about the work that I do is exactly how when often say in a meeting or in a one-on-one conversation it'll start with you know what i want is to not be cleaning up rat feces around my apartment what Mm -hmm. i want is to not pay 50 percent of my income in rent Mm -hmm. and then you dig a little deeper and it's like underneath those material desires comes come the words like you know what i want is dignity i Mm -hmm. want I want a home that I can be proud of, that I can invite invite other people over to and not be embarrassed by. Mm. You know, what I want is stability. I want to know that I'm not going to have to move again in six months. I want to feel like I can envision the next few years, the next few decades in the same place. What I want is to stay next to the neighbors that I know because I trust them and I feel like we have community here and I want to preserve that you know i want community so uh, it, under the sort of material interests that people have then you press in and you realize these are really fundamental human desires that for what constitutes human flourishing dignity stability community um hospitality you know um values that you know, again, I learned from my faith first. Right. These are spiritual questions. Right. Right. And it's when people tap into those like really deep heart level and and truly universal, like those are Mm. universal desires. Those are not unique to any individual. When people talk about wanting dignity, everyone understands what that means, you know? Yeah. And that's where... I find that the possibility for collective action and solidarity can come from because even if you say, you know, again, tenant union context, even in the same apartment complex, neighbors don't necessarily have all the same issues. Sure. Apartment to apartment. But what they what they can resonate with is 
a desire for those those core things of you know a dignified life and so tapping into that has this tendency to to connect people to each other and see each other and humanize each other mm-hmm. and and move from a, a sort of rampant individualism to something more like a community a shared identity as a group i'd love to hear you speak more about the the challenges of this work and what gives you hope oh man nothing has taught me or compelled me to uh, become flexible and nimble uh, like organizing has and tenant organizing particularly where there is no blueprint there's you know labor union organizing is very arduous and you know very demanding the different thing that it has that tenant organizing does not is sort of a legal infrastructure and a, right, a sort of right. you know we have the nlrb you you file for an election in this way there's sort of a blueprint for what it takes to organize a union a labor union and organizing doesn't have any of that and so it's very open-ended we've gone through so many stages of how we have understood and defined that as Connecticut Tenants Union. I'm I'm very sort of happy and proud to say that I think, you know, two and a half years in, we're starting to create a blueprint more or less. I mean, we've mm. learned a lot and are sort of crafting our own model that I'm excited about. But I think to get there has taken a lot of coping with failure and losing, you know. Um, sure not being able to save everyone from eviction and not, you know, the watching sort of the often brutal cycle of real estate and its effect on people's lives, um, win the day. And we couldn't, we couldn't intervene and it was really hard to watch. And you know, that it's certainly, there are plenty of moments where it was like, you know, are we ever going to be able to, are we ever going to be able to beat this? Like, are we ever going to be able to intervene in a meaningful way? And those are, those are really challenging moments. But on the flip side, I think something I think about a lot is that these violences are happening every day, whether I'm close to them or not. Mm. Um, what organizing does is expose the violence that is happening every day and be audacious enough and, and you could call it delusional or you could call it faithful <laughs> enough. Yeah to try to do something, mm. you know, that maybe that doesn't sound super hopeful, but I find it very hopeful to think that the problems exist. I'm not creating the problems. The, the choice in front of me is what am I going to do about the problems? Um, mm. And when I am asking someone to participate in, in organizing or to join a tenant union, I'm, ge- I'm just simply presenting them with the choice of, you know, this violence is happening. I'm going to present you with a choice about taking action in regards to it. I'm not going to sell it to you. I'm not going to force you. I'm simply, I'm not, I'm not going to even, you know, exaggerate the problem because the problem is right there. Yeah. It's simply a, a choice. Do you want, do you want to join us in fighting it or, or not? And I find what, what's so hopeful is how often people say yes. Yeah. To that question. Well, so often yeah. I think people don't realize there is a choice. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's what's so empowering about it. That even despite the failures and the losses along the way, 
it's incredibly empowering to realize that there's a choice that we mm. could we could take an action and that sometimes it will work <laughs> yeah you know and the small wins that you achieve along the way are a source of of empowerment and inspiration i'm sure not only to the people that you are organizing but also to communities beyond your neighborhood yeah it's been remarkable to me actually how big of an impact i feel like the tenant unions in connecticut have been able to make relative to our time on the scene and our you know relative size i think something about the concept of a tenant union of neighbors getting together to fight for each other and fight for better housing conditions has seemed to struck a chord with a lot of folks in the broader community with other organizations with politicians i think sort of the housing crisis as it's often called gets a lot of airtime and everyone is very aware that it's a problem um i will say that we try not to call it a housing crisis because it's not housing that's in crisis it's people who are in crisis it's a mm -hmm. it's a tenants crisis you know mm. it's a tenants rights crisis it's not that we don't have enough houses we have millions of houses sitting empty um, right it's how that how the re the resource of housing is being distributed that's a really so, important reframing yeah yeah um but the so-called housing crisis is constantly being talked about but i think the the idea that tenants in other words people rather than sort of really confusing and often abstract and often like very difficult to understand policy debates in a in a sort of high level, you know, how do we do zoning reform? How do we like piece together all these different sources of funding to do the thing that we call affordable housing, et cetera. While all that is valid, I think recentering it on the people, like the human beings who need housing and need better quality housing and need more secure housing, which is what tenant, the tenant union struggle is all about. Um, I think that has made some waves and, and, mm. you know, inspired some people and help, helped reframe the conversation. Like in that way that I just described, um, not entirely, certainly we've got a long way to go, but, um, but I think just making it a little simpler that like what we're talking about is human beings and their right to have a roof over their head. That's, mm -hmm. that's what it is, you know? So let's talk about that. Like, let's start there before we, uh, get into a sort of a more academic discussion. Mm. Well, and it's clear that that conversation for you is informed by the people that you've, whose doors you've knocked, <laughs> where you've been able to build relationships with your neighbors and get to know their stories and their, their family stories. Right. Yeah. What does a day in the life of a tenant organizer look like? It's fun. I have a lot of fun. Uh, it's knocking on a lot of doors. <laughs> um, it's a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings. Um, you know, hey, can I have an hour of your time or 30 minutes of your time to talk about what it's like to rent from this company or, you know, live in this apartment complex? Hmm. It's a lot of phone calls. I'm on the phone all the time because, again, it's so relational. You know, 80% of what I do is in com being in communication with other human beings. Yeah. <laughs> I do not sit at my desk very much. So, I mean, things I'm thinking about all the time are, are, are there enough people in this apartment complex that 
want to take on some level of leadership to get this thing off the ground? If so, what kind of support are they going to need? What kind of uh, mentorship and training are they going to need to make that happen? How do I Mm. get to know those folks to really understand what makes them tick and what their values are, what their goals are going to be? And then once I know that about the individuals, how do we make that align as a group to fund a union? Okay, now we've got this group of people who's working together, who's exhibiting leadership, who's knocking on their neighbor's doors, who are, you know, building relationships within this little community of an apartment complex. Then it moves into um, campaign planning. Like what are the actions that we're going to take? Um, who are, who, who are the people that have the power that we need to get the changes mm-hmm. that we want to see and how do we influence them to get some of that power back for ourselves? So it's very strategic and it's, it is all about analyzing power, who has it, who needs it, how do we move it around? And to, to sort of re- return to that soulful revolutionary piece, in all of that, in the, the sort of really relational and interpersonal building, building the union, building the community, and in these public-facing strategy, power analyzing aspect, all of that really rests on spiritual values like hope mm. and faith and courage and love you know truly love is is the is the thing that sustains because anger anger comes from love often but anger alone cannot sustain the the daily grind Mm. um but love can Mm. love can it can get me through the interpersonal conflict, the feeling of overwhelm, the mm-hmm. confusion, not knowing what's the best next step. Um, yeah, I hope it doesn't sound trite, but it's, it's just simply very true that coming back to my own love for these people, my love for myself, their love for themselves, and are sort of what I would describe as a kind of collective longing for mm. something better that for me sounds like God, you know, mm-hmm. um, like that is the sustaining force in the, the day-to-day grind of meetings and phone calls. Google Docs. <laughs> All the Google Docs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder with that love piece, was there a relationship with a specific neighbor that got you inspired to do this work in the first place? You know, that takes me back to my life before being a tenant organizer when I was a homeless outreach worker, mm. which was also very relational. It was not, um, it was not organizing. It was not focused on moving power around, moving resources around. It was about just trying to keep people alive, honestly, and get them connected to existing resources. Um, but I formed some bonds with, you know, in particular, a handful of individuals who were, had lived almost their entire adult lives outside society, outside Mm -hmm. mainstream society on the streets. Um, I remember this, this one guy, Rick had been, he was in his sixties. 
he'd been living sort of just a vagabond nomadic life since his 20s and had survived so many things that were hard for me to even wrap my mind around. Yeah. Um, had experienced traumas that I can barely fathom um, and was now sort of entering his old age because when you've lived that kind of life as a chronically homeless person, 60 is old, your body is yeah. tired, you know. Yeah. Um, and we would just have these conversations about life and his reflections on on himself, his life, on people. You know, he taught me a lot of things. He just had a sort of inner resilience that I was really, really drawn to and really admired. And it was so painful to watch him in his elder years being so tired and not having a place to lay down and rest stable housing where he could shut the door and feel safe mm. and and there were a lot of individuals that I, I worked with like that and that's both why housing is so fundamental for me um, and also why again none of this can ever become an abstraction because it's so yeah. human you know yeah. it's so like people's basic needs yeah it's just about human dignity in a really really foundational way people like rick and others frequently keep me grounded in that foundation hmm. i'd like to invite you to share more about your organization where can folks find you how can they support you and this growing movement for tenant rights yeah please follow uh, ct tenants union on twitter and instagram Whenever we're in the news, we'll post it on there. Or whenever a, one of our tenant unions does a public action, we'll post it on there. So that's a good way to keep up with us. We do occasionally put out a call to action, most often for Connecticut residents, but occasionally it's something that other people in other places could do. I think in, in general, especially for folks not in Connecticut, like find out what tenant organizing is going on in your state or even in your city. The past few years have seen the tenant movement really experience a resurgence that it had had not in many, many years. So you may or may not be aware of stuff going on in your state, um, but it's likely that something's going on because the tenants' rights crisis, the housing crisis has now reached pretty much every part of this country. And uh, in my opinion, I think the only way we're going to solve our problems with housing is by organizing people. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be through sort of purely abstract policy makers moving things around it's going to be through building of movement of people who know how to stand up for themselves and demand better so whoever in your area is doing that find out who they are and support them and if you do happen to be in the northeast connecticut tenants union we are here we are on the scene and we would love to <laughs> right on <laughs> connect with you <laughs> awesome awesome well, Luke, it's been a joy and an inspiration to spend this time with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on A Soulful Revolution. And, and thank you for the beautiful work that you're doing as a soulful revolutionary in the world. Thanks so much, Lauren. It was really fun. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to A Soulful Revolution. This podcast is entirely made possible by listeners like you. If you like what you heard today, invite a friend to subscribe. 
and we'll see you next time.